Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Launchpad, Rocket Pool's interview series with prominent members of the Rocket Pool community. Today, we're talking to Anthony Sasano, who's known as Sasal on um, Twitter and on the Daily Gui. He's the host of a daily Ethereum news show called The Daily Gui, uh, also has a newsletter and was the co-founder of EthHub um, that finished recently, right? So um, mm-hmm. it's my absolute pleasure to have you here, Anthony. Um, when I started Rocket Fuel, it was um, the Daily Gui was a huge inspiration for for the show and for like the content style, the arrangement style, like a lot. Like the more you watch the two shows, the more you'll see just how inspired I was by your content. And they do say like imitation is like you know the form of flattery or something. <laughs> so um, I hope you don't. I'm, I hope you know you you are flattered by that, and I don't mean to like you know rip off your thoughts or anything like that, but. Um, it's really been a pleasure learning about Ethereum through the content you produce and also um, now to have you here. So uh, why don't you tell the people who might not be fully familiar with who you are a little bit about who you are, and then we can talk about uh, how you, why you're here. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, thank you for having me on. I'm excited to, to have this conversation and thank you for the kind words. I mean, it means a lot to me that I was able to inspire other people to create their own content and go out there and just just give it a go. I mean, that's one of the, the core reasons I do what I do is because I want to inspire other people to get involved with Ethereum, get involved with the projects that they love and provide value to their communities as well, which definitely you are doing with Rocket Fuel. So so, so kudos on that. Uh, but in terms of my kind of, I guess, uh, journey and where I place myself in the ecosystem, more broadly. I mean, I've always been about being an educator and being really involved with the community at large. Like I'm not a coder, I'm not a developer or anything like that. I tried to get into that, but I'm just not built that way, so to speak. I think uh, my talents definitely lie in, you know, community uh, marketing slash kind of education. Uh, And I think those, those fit nicely together. And Honestly, there wasn't much of that back in when I started Ethub with Eric Connor, my co-founder in 2018. We started at late 2018. There wasn't really much of uh, education for Ethereum. You know, Bankless didn't really exist. I mean, I think Bankless came out shortly after, but it didn't really yeah. exist. There were crypto podcasts, but they weren't, you know, Ethereum focused. And the Ethereum.org website um, is, is awesome today. But back then it hadn't been updated since the Ethereum ICO, basically. So Definitely. it was lacking in a lot of ways. Yeah. So that in that was kind of like our inspiration to, to create Ethub to create these educational resources and then more and more came online over time and recently we announced on on twitter that ethub was going to be sunset uh and was going to be kind of uh, uh stop operations so to speak uh because we felt like we didn't need to to kind of continue with it because there were so many other things going on and then of course i have the daily gray which is just my solo project that i do where i do videos every day educating about ethereum i do newsletter i have a community that that we all kind of um you know have discussions in the discord channel and things like that so yeah i mean i i, I I like how you don't have to kind of ask anyone's permission. You don't have to do to kind of, uh, I guess, try too hard in terms of like getting people to pay attention to your stuff in the Ethereum community. If you're producing interesting stuff, people will pay attention to it and they'll really value it. Uh, especially if you're putting it out there for free, like people obviously love love when it's when it's free, um, and and love getting the uh, the educational content uh, that way as well. But yeah, that's kind of like where I, I place myself in the community. I do have a bunch of other things I do outside of that, like I do advising of different projects, I do angel investing, um, I you know I buy ETH whenever I can so I can yeah. so I can stake it. Um, but yeah, my core of my day to day is just keeping up with everything happening in Ethereum and then reporting on that and distilling that for the daily way. Which is really funny because 
I do the exact same thing, but just for the Rockable community. So yep. I keep on top of everything that's happening in the Rockable community, and then I just report it the next day. So it's very, very similar, just like a, a small subset of what you do. And of course, you report on the Rocket Pool community too, right? Like with Marcieos mm-hmm. um, or like, no, I'm kidding. Marcel, Marcel's <laughs> Butchering tweets. the pronunciation of yeah. his name every time. <laughs> Marcel's tweets, Jasper's tweets, but also, you know, protocol updates, things from Joe, you know, the developers on the team. So as in the Rocket Pool community, we, f- we feel like, you know, you're very well aligned with the project and we we really appreciate it when you give us coverage. I think it's um, like 8.30 or 9 a.m. on Eastern time when you publish the Daily Gui and like within five or 10 minutes, they're like, hey, you know, uh, Sasal, Sasal talked about Rocket Pool today in this minute and there's a timestamp and then like what you covered and stuff. So people really appreciate the the symbiotic relationship between like your coverage and like the rocket pool community and that's really cool so that's that's mm-hmm. really great like um why don't we take a little bit of a step back and um go back like you know 10 11 years now and you kind of shared little glimpses of your story of like how you got into crypto and like how your journey started on on the daily way and people like who listen every day probably have heard bits and pieces of this in different places but maybe not the whole thing in one go so how did you hear about crypto? Like, I guess it was Bitcoin back in the day, right? But like, how did you hear about it? How did you get into those communities? What What was going on back then? Yeah, yeah. So my journey with crypto started, I would say, I guess like early to mid 2013. And okay. uh, this was back before Ethereum, obviously. Uh, it was just really Bitcoin and a bunch of offshoots of Bitcoin, like Litecoin and uh, some other forks. Yeah. Uh, but I got into it because my friends had discovered it and was actually uh, renting mining equipment uh, to mine Bitcoin. Uh, and I, I never did any mining myself personally, whether it was renting or, or mining on my own. But I got into it. I was like, okay, this is really cool. Uh, I re- obviously read the white paper. Uh, I kind of, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't cast myself as a libertarian or anything like that and at the, at the time to put it in context i was 21 years old mm-hmm. so I, I i was i was still very young and i kind of got into it with the notion of i can make a lot of money from this it yeah. was definitely about the money back then it wasn't really about the tech like i understood the bitcoin mission and vision and i actually really appreciated it and, and believed in it but most of why i was in there was for the money yeah. now because of this and because it was my first cycle so to speak there weren't many cycles to be a part of at that point but mm-hmm. i was definitely a, a complete noob I ended up just trading and trading really badly, uh, mm-hmm. you know, getting involved with with, uh, with scams in terms of like sending money to, to something that turned out to be a scam. Yeah. Uh, I traded the, the uh, they call them, you know, altcoins, like Dogecoin, things like that when they, when they came out. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I made a lot of really silly mistakes back then because as I said, I was really just in it for the money. And uh, I, there wasn't much that I'd put in. I didn't have much money at, when I was 21. I was I was uh, just working kind of part-time at uni- university. Um, but yeah, everything that I was I was trying to do was just with that goal of of making money. It wasn't really getting involved with the community or or, or staying up to date with what was happening in Bitcoin. And then obviously 2014 happened and Mount MT Gox kind of collapsed and all the bear market came and everyone thought Bitcoin was dead. And I, I fell into that camp of of Bitcoin crypto is dead. Like screw this, I'm I'm out. And I left just before the Ethereum ICO. Funny enough, oh, like wow. uh, mid to yeah, like early to mid 2014, I I, I left. Mm-hmm. I just stopped paying attention to crypto. I sold what little I had left. And I said to my friend who originally got me into it, I'm like, nah, man, it's it's dead. Like screw crypto. I'm on to the next thing. 
And then I didn't get back into to crypto until early 2017 when I discovered Ethereum through a different friend who said to me, hey, you know, I know you were into Bitcoin back in the day. You should check out Ethereum. Uh, it's different because you can build stuff on it. Uh, and they're talking about this proof of stake thing. And then I got into it. And yeah, since then, I've, I've been involved pretty much like uh, full time in terms of all my attention on on the Ethereum slash crypto ecosystem generally. Uh, and I think the second time it was much easier for me to, I guess, stick around and get involved was because I was actually in it for the tech at that point. Yeah. Like, I, yes, I did obviously want to make money again and, and things like that, but I was much more interested in the Ethereum tech, like building building stuff on it. The very, very uh, first kind of examples of things like DeFi, uh, when you had uh, Ether Delta, which was an mm. order book exchange or on-chain, it was very primitive. But yeah. just seeing that, and you couldn't do that on Bitcoin, it really inspired me and it really uh, encouraged me to get more involved. And then the bear market happened again. And I uh, this time around, I said to myself, well, I'm going to stick around now. Mm -hmm. I know what happened last time when I exited and thought it was dead. It came back, came back in a very big way. And I missed out on all these opportunities. Yeah. So I'm going to stick around and, you know, make a name for myself, make opportunities for myself. And that's exactly what I did. And that's the reason why I'm here today. The reason why I have uh, such a large following and, and the reason I do what I do is because I, I stuck around. And I, that's why I always encourage people, in, especially in this bear market that we've experienced uh, so far, stick around, you know, stick around, take advantage of the opportunities, not just investing opportunities, but uh, money, you know, investing in the market, but also investing in yourself. Uh, if you want to get more involved, this is the perfect time to do so, whether that's working for a company in, in crypto or doing your own thing, like what you're doing with Rocket Fuel, it's yeah. the perfect time to do it. There's much less noise, much more signal, much more people in it for the mission rather than being mercenaries and uh i i think you need like a cycle to to experience that because a lot of people who are first cyclers most of them won't stick around because as i said they're only in it for the money which is how i started so i, I sympathize with that um but but yeah i think without that experience in 2013 slash 2014 i wouldn't have been able to make that conscious decision in 2018 to stick around this time i probably would have would have left uh, if i just got in, into it in 2017 which would have been a monumental mistake my life would be so different to what it is today uh i can't even imagine what my life would be like if I hadn't stuck around and, and actually really kind of gave it a go. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a, I guess a TLDR of my, my journey over the last eight, nine years now. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm going to ask you some questions about it, right? Um, when you got into crypto in the beginning, um, were you like part of any online communities? Like where were you getting your crypto news from like your Bitcoin news? Was any of that happening or was it just through <clears throat> friends? Yeah, so the main place for Bitcoin news was the um, the subreddit, uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, Bitcoin subreddit and uh, Bitcoin talk forums. They were like the most active places. And then there was some, I mean, no one was using Discord. Twitter was was very small. The crypto Twitter wasn't a thing. Uh, but there were some things called troll boxes on mm -hmm. these uh, centralized Polonics, exchanges. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, uh, Poloniex, uh, BTCE and those were kind of, I mean, there, there, there wasn't any signal there. It was just like shit posting, like what we see on crypto Twitter, but in, in the chat form. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, other than that, there wasn't actually that many places. So it was really just the Bitcoin subreddit and, uh, and uh, Bitcoin talk forums, but also uh, on YouTube, there was Andreas Antonopoulos who mm -hmm. pretty much like everyone watched. He was the yeah. original, I mean, he was my inspiration to be honest uh, for, for, for doing what I do. Uh, but yeah, he was a big source of information for so many people because it seemed like he was at, you know, he was the fourth front basically like of bitcoin like he wasn't just at the forefront he was pushing it forward more than anyone um but other than that there wasn't that many places to to keep up with things that's great because um i watched his videos when i got into crypto in in 2017 end of 2017 i got in right at the peak mania phase and then mm -hmm. I, I was like down way down like for months for years literally for years 
And I held on, you know, I held on through that cycle and I didn't sell. I just bought more. And um, now I, I didn't sell again during the peak this time. So yeah. <laughs> <here we> <laughs> <laughs> but um, let's, let's, let's now come to your second cycle, right? So you learn about Ethereum, you start getting involved in Ethereum. You told me a little bit about some other apps you were using, the dApps you were using. Um, what was, what communities were you part of for Ethereum then? And how were those different from the Bitcoin communities you were a part of before? Yeah, so I think even in 2017, like Twitter wasn't that big either. I think Twitter really took off in 2018, 2019 in terms of uh, getting more engagement there, but it was still Reddit. Like ETH Trader was very, very big in 2017. I wasn't active. I was more of a lurker. So I'd lurk ETH Trader. Um, I, I'd sometimes go on Twitter. There was still some, like a little bit of activity happening there, but not much. Uh, the Bitcoin talk forums at that point, I don't think much was going on there. So it really was mostly Reddit for me, the ETH Trader subreddit, the day thread on ETH Trader was was like where everyone was and you'd go on there and you'd read through the comments and it'd be like a live it, it was Twitter before Twitter basically yeah. where there would be like a live stream of of comments coming up uh but but yeah I, I was actually just a massive lurker in 2017 because I, I wasn't working in crypto or anything like that I was working a full-time job somewhere else and I was just lurking uh learning what I could about it uh I was actually attending local meetups here in, in Melbourne where I live so I didn't really have much of a community on online within the Ethereum community I didn't know anyone back then it wasn't like what you see today with all the prominent Ethereum members knowing each other like you know yeah. bankless guys and DC investor and Eric Connor my co like we all came together in the bear market and we all yeah. kind of met each other in the bear market but in 2017 it was it was really just massive lurking on my part I wasn't known in the community I wasn't anyone in the community I was just new to the space uh but then as i said like 2018 2019 is where it really kind of came together uh, as a community it's so great because so i've this is this is my fifth launchpad episode and a whole bunch of people that i've had on launchpad before were kind of in the eth trader slash eth finance lurking in there and mm -hmm. Superphase and i were talking about how that's like home for so many people and where they kind of got started in that period i don't know if people yep. get started there anymore now because there's such there are other communities in other places but those were such great communities so at the same in the same way that you did i lurked on eth trader too until the schism happened right and i don't know if you mm -hmm. were around for the schism but then with the donuts and all that all that drama yeah but i then, was i was around yeah, for that yeah but i went to I think ETH it's finance mm. And that yeah. became the best of ETH Trader, basically. And it got, mm -hmm. I think the signal to noise ratio got even better then. And we had some real heavyweights back then, like DC Investor used to post in there all the time, right? Like he was um, people's guardian angel during the last bear mm -hmm. market by just keeping spirits up. We'd get like, go from thousands of posts a day in ETH Finance down to like 100 or 120, 150. And DC Investor was one of the guys in there every day saying, look, I've been through this before and you, you hold on, let's do something. And then when he went to Twitter, I think the a little bit of the community was lost with him, you know, but like, it's still amazing, an amazing, phenomenal place. But um, I guess like, so then you went to Twitter, people like DC Investor went to Twitter. So how did that happen? Like what, what kind of conversations were taking place on Twitter that made it so engagement, engaging for people instead of places like Reddit? I think that the main thing with Twitter was that you were able to grow an audience for yourself that you couldn't really do on Reddit, right? Like, yeah, you would be known, you know, people would know your, your kind of like handle and everything like that, but it's, uh, and they, I don't know if it's changed today, but you couldn't follow people on Reddit, so to speak, like you can on Twitter, right? You wouldn't, yeah, you, can, you wouldn't really, not very good. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it's, it's not the same experience and you wouldn't retweet them or repost them. Mm -hmm. Like you could link to their, it was just, it was much more fragmented than it is with Twitter where it's all basically in the same kind of interface on, on yeah. the Twitter feed. Yeah. Um, and I think also what Twitter did was bridge communities together. So it wasn't just the Ethereum community. It was the Bitcoin community. It was the other communities. It was uh, people outside of crypto. So, and, and, you know, I, I guess like being on ETH trade or on ETH finance, you were just siloed into just, mm -hmm. just Ethereum. Right. Yeah. So you couldn't really, um, do much more than that on there. And I think that that played a part, but I think the biggest part, at least for me <clears throat> personally, was that I was able to grow an audience on there. That's why I, I chose Twitter over, over Reddit, uh, because I, I felt like it was much easier for me to grow a following, grow an audience than it, than it was on, on Reddit. And I think as time went on and as people kept growing a following and kept getting bigger and bigger, more people noticed that. And they're like, you know, I need to be on Twitter. And it's just, it's kind of network effects, but getting mm -hmm. network effects, basically yeah. like as it grows, it keeps growing. And then people kind of migrated across. And I think that happened after the the drama with ETH trader and ETH finance as well. I, I remember I tried to be active in ETH finance, but I just kept getting drawn back to Twitter and I couldn't really maintain being active on both because Twitter was just a full-time job in of itself just yeah. to, to, to maintain being active there. But I, I really do think it was that commingling of communities that made Twitter special as well, because you didn't get that if you were just siloed into a different subreddit, uh, yeah. like, you know, Bitcoin people didn't, didn't visit ETH trader and, and Ethereum people didn't really visit the, the Bitcoin subreddits that, that much. So that commingling and also the fact that you could grow a following for yourself rather, rather easily. Uh, and it was, it was all in one interface. I think that drew people a lot more than, than Reddit did. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that. I guess, like you're saying, in 2018, 2019, that's when the Twitter, crypto Twitter really blossomed and bloomed. And it's really interesting because that was, you know, the depth of the bear market, right? Like um, mm -hmm. ETH went down 95, 94%. Bitcoin went down 80 plus percent. Like things were really bad and a lot of people left. So what made you stay around in that time? You said, you know, you stayed for the tech, but what was it specifically like? Can you remember some of the things that you're really passionate about or like really looking forward to back then that really like kept you around? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely things like proof of stake and and sharding, like the core Ethereum roadmap items, yeah. uh, especially proof of stake. Like proof of stake for me is the thing that that kept me around, the thing that got me most interested in Ethereum. Uh, I'd always been extremely fascinated with it. It went through lots of changes since mm -hmm. I, I first learned about it in, in 2017, but that always kept me very, very engaged. And then as the Ethereum roadmap continued to blossom and continued to go out into different directions, and we had, you know, we had the, the whole change of proof of stake from the old design to the new design uh that really inspired me as well because i i thought to myself wow these guys spent all this time working on this thing and instead of falling into the sunk cost fallacy they said screw it we've got something better that we can do that we can deliver faster we're going to scrap all the old work and focus on this and some a lot of people actually view that as a negative they're like yeah. oh look ethereum doesn't know how to, to do anything you know they scrapped all their their work it's never going to work but i viewed that as a, a, a huge positive and i viewed that as in, incredibly inspiring um so that was i mean that's the protocol layer but in terms of the app layer as I said, there was there was like the first inklings of DeFi back then. There was Maker that had come out end of 2017 with with single collateral die uh, that kept me involved. Then Uniswap came along a, a bit later, right? And then we we slowly had a trickle of these different DeFi apps coming online, like Compound and Aave over 2018, 2019, and early 2020. Uh, so all of that 
I mean, because it was a slow trickle, uh, it kind of just kept me involved. It was like a slow drip. Instead of coming all at once where I'd get bored within a month because I, I experienced everything, it was yeah. a slow drip of really cool things coming out. And then at the same time, I had the community that I was growing for myself and I was making friends and I felt at home because we were all aligned on the Ethereum mission. We really wanted to see proof of stake delivered. We wanted to see DeFi proliferate. We wanted to see all these other use cases, uh, you know, grow and grow and grow. And then because that was those bonds were formed in a bear market when the bull market came back it just strengthened those bonds so much because we we all felt like wow we actually were right about what we thought we, we were right about DeFi being a big deal we were right about proof of stake actually being delivered uh and and working uh and we were right about the ethereum roadmap actually coming together and 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 doing all these these really cool things and having all these cool things on the roadmap so that was definitely a a, a very big um a reason there but i think also for a lot of people and, and and this is viewed as a negative by some, but I think for a lot of people, they looked at Vitalik and he inspired them unlike anyone else. I mean, Vitalik for me, like has been an absolutely massive inspiration because of just the way he conducts himself. Like yeah. I, I I can't think of anything bad to say about Vitalik. I disagree with things he says sometimes, but that's 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 human, right? That's natural. But in terms of being a a, a leader, uh and and I think that when I say leader, I don't mean he controls the Ethereum like project or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. He he yeah. sets the the culture, and that's like a, a thing that that goes goes down from there. And that's what attracted a lot of the really brightest minds and brightest people in Ethereum is that culture that Vitalik initially sets that has persisted over time. And that for me kept me in the the community as well because I didn't ever like. I, I mean, originally in 2013 I did drive with the Bitcoin community, but these days and even 2018, 2019, I didn't drive with them at all. They were calling yeah. Ethereum a scam. They were saying that it's dead. Blah blah blah, and they were just coming up with all these weird things to promote Bitcoin with and i was like i don't vibe with this community at all uh they're not my people so to speak so i'm going to go over to this other one and i think a big reason why i i was using twitter a lot as well in 2018 and 2019 as i said because of that commingling of communities but i felt a need as an educator to correct all this fud that bitcoin bitcoiners were spreading and they were doing it on twitter so yeah. i'd go and reply to them and then people would would really resonate with that and they'd follow me because of that and that's how ethub got started because eric and i were doing this on twitter then we're like how about we just create pages on ethub and then we can link people to it instead of having to repeat ourselves constantly and people love that because they were like well i don't know who to believe but uh you know here's all the information for me to read and, and digest and i can make up my own mind from here so that was yeah it, it was it was basically a bunch of things coming together uh, as i said slow drip instead of all at once and then when the bull market happened we all just felt so incredibly validated by everything that we had kind of gone through obviously yeah. going through a, a brutal bear market with people um it really does form strong bonds and that's continued to this day. We all still talk to each other. We all still kind of do podcasts with each other and 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 still have the same kind of vision and belief in Ethereum uh, that we did. And it's it's much more strengthened now, especially delivering the merge. I mean, I think delivering the merge was the, the most monumental thing Ethereum has ever done. And that really continued to strengthen those bonds uh, and, and I think will into the future. That's so great. That's like really resonates with a lot of what I thought of those at those periods of time as well it's just i was in different communities and i wasn't as engaged as you were but um mm -hmm. fighting fud and trying to correct maxis and like <laughs> that was that was what all of us were doing at that time because that's all there was to do pretty much because mm -hmm. they were so mm -hmm. they were so aggressive right they were so unrelenting and it was it could have been it was overwhelming for a lot of people and not not everyone could do it so 
that's really great. And it was the popular view as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like today you can kind of ignore them and laugh at them. But yeah. back then the Bitcoin Maximus were the crypto community. Like no one yeah. was really taking Ethereum and ETH seriously, they were, but but they were taking the Bitcoin as seriously. And then that, that definitely changed very quickly. I think in 2020 with DeFi summer, uh, yeah. that really converted a lot of the, the skeptics uh, over to Ethereum. But yeah, people don't don't realize like how relentless it was because today they say, oh, why do you even reply to these Bitcoin maximums? Everyone knows they're stupid. It's like because it's it's left over from when everyone didn't think they were stupid and thought they were like the the, the source of truth. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, unless you were around back then, you don't actually realize like how uh, bad it was for Ethereum at that point of time in terms of sentiment around it. Yeah, the sentiment like before in, in 2017, you know, we had the double peak on the ratio hitting like 0 0.15. Like mm -hmm. people thought the flipping was imminent. And the flipping didn't come, and then the ratio went down ninety percent against Bitcoin, yep. down to zero point zero one six. I think it was at the mm -hmm. lowest in the bear market. You know when they had the ETH is dead parties and stuff, and yeah, you know, they were yeah. dancing on the grave of ETH. You know, like that was that was what was happening, and um, it was a it was a dark time to be an Ethereum holder at that point, definitely. Um, tell me a little bit about EthHub because I have to admit it's not a resource that I ever really interacted with. So mm -hmm. you said it was like a list of pages with information. Like, uh, what 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 was the goal of EthHub and how did it grow? And like, how did it become a such a great tool for the community? Yeah, so there were three main things that EthHub did. There was the um, documentation website or like kind of wiki style website that was uh, open source. Anyone could contribute to it uh, that we launched. There was a uh, podcast that we did and then there was a newsletter. So a weekly podcast, weekly newsletter. The newsletter I had actually started in early 2018 as a different name. So I, I called it Block by Block uh, Newsletter and there was a website called blockbyblock.io that was a list of resources for people to, to kind of read about crypto Ethereum. It was just links to different resources. Um, so that was my very first foray into doing anything in, in, in crypto uh, besides just lurking. And then I converted the block by block newsletter to the EthHub weekly newsletter. And that was just a way to keep up with Ethereum. Uh, you know, each and every week. Uh, there was another newsletter that was doing that week in Ethereum uh, as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. like, I, I felt like, you know, there uh, there definitely could be more than that. So that's why I did it. And it was, it was kind of uh, a, a different format there, but there was that. And then the, um, the, the, the podcast, which we would do, Eric and I would do like a weekly recap on the podcast of the newsletter. And then we would have guests on, uh, but the wiki style website was uh, basically in response to the Ethereum.org website, not being updated. And, mm -hmm. and it didn't look like it was going to get updated. And, as I said, it had a lot of old information on there, very, very outdated. Uh, and I felt we we both felt like it was it was lacking in the community of having all this up to date information about Ethereum. So yeah. we created those pages that that dispelled the fud, but we also created a lot of pages about like what you could do on Ethereum, the different apps on Ethereum, like Uniswap and and Compound and Aave and all that. And then we paid pages for things like how to run a full node and Ethereum's monetary policy, all that sort of stuff, which is now covered by Ethereum.org. But back then, uh, there, there was no one doing that at all. Uh, there was another ETH wiki that I think Virgil Griffith actually had started, but he let that kind of fall to the wayside, didn't really get updated either. So we 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 did it with Ethub. We got it uh, with the Ethub wiki. Um, we got it up. We kept it updated. We it was open source. So anyone could contribute to it. Uh, but then Ethereum.org, I guess, like got updated. They put a team on it. The Ethereum Foundation put a team on it, and it's been updated. And it's an amazing resource today. Yeah. And then more and more Ethereum podcasts came out, and and like obviously like Bankless and things like that. And then mm -hmm. the newsletter, I guess, more and more newsletters came out. So that's why we eventually sunset it there. Uh, but that was the initial motivation but, but, uh, for doing all of that because there really wasn't anything back then and we yep. wanted people to get the right information instead of getting this really outdated information on the Ethereum.org website.
I see. So how did you then transition from working on ETH Hub and doing these podcasts and newsletters to the Daily Gway? And what was the overlap like? What was like the unique point about Daily Gway? And how did you differentiate those projects? What was going on there? Yeah, so I, I personally wanted to do more than what we were doing with ETHUB uh, mm -hmm. within the community. Uh, and because Eric lives in LA or lived in LA at the time and I live in, in Melbourne, it was very hard for us to schedule things to do together because of the, the time zone difference was yeah. so massive. So I basically said, well, I want to do more for Ethereum, um, but I don't want to do it under the, the ETHUB uh, label because it really is just my thing uh, mm -hmm. that I'm gonna, just going to do uh, an addition to ETHUB. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to do the daily way. It's going to be a daily newsletter. It's going to be daily YouTube videos. The newsletter came first, so it started off as just a daily newsletter in mid-2020, and then by the end of 2020, I was like, I need to do a YouTube channel as well. There's too much to talk about with Ethereum. I need to do a, a YouTube channel, and that's when that got started there. But I was still doing Ethub at the time, uh, and it was fine. Like Eric was fine with it. He was like encouraging me to, to continue, continue with it. Um, and then eventually Eric, Eric had been in crypto since 2013, but he hadn't left. So he'd literally been the whole time since, yeah. since then. So he eventually got to a point where he's like, I've been in this industry for so long. Um, I wouldn't call it burnout. It was more that his journey in crypto was, was, was different than mine where he wanted to take a step back. Whereas I wanted to keep going. Yeah. So daily way came about because of that as well. And then eventually ethub took a back seat to daily way and then we we sunset it officially uh, but it was kind of that transition period because i knew that you know eric had been in it for so long he was a little bit exhausted by things he wanted to take a break yeah you know he has a family now he has a has a daughter so for him it was we were in different stages of our life he's not that much older than me i think he's like five years older than me basically but he's in a different stage to where i was at at the time sure. uh and where i could dedicate more time to it and he couldn't dedicate that that time to it which which is why i was like okay well i'll just do the daily grave thing we'll run ethub for as long as it, it it holds on for and then we can sunset it eventually and there's no kind of hard feelings or anything like that because we both got out of ethub what we wanted which was to provide all the value to the ethereum community at the time uh grow our own brands uh, and our own names within the community uh and then uh, leverage that for different things as as yeah. well but for me i just have a inherent drive to to add value like if i'm not doing if i miss a refuel like i feel really bad about missing a refuel so it it's kind of that drive but i think Maybe if I have a kid in the future and my life circumstances change, maybe I'll have to kind of take a step back as well from it. Uh, so it's just, it really is that I think for people, it's like they, they hit different periods in their life. And especially if they've been in it for 10 years straight, mm -hmm. it's, it becomes a, 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 a notion of, well, you know, I've added all this value. Any value that I add now is maybe marginal. You know, I've, done, I've gotten what I wanted out of this ecosystem and I've provided all this value. Uh, so I'm going to take a step back now, which I think is totally fine for people to do. Of course, definitely. Um, so did you like quit your normie job at this point? Like what was happening? How did you find the hours to do all this work? What was going on with that? Yeah, so mid-2019 is when I quit my normie job and joined Set Protocol, which is a DeFi okay. protocol um, as, a, as a marketing person there. So I was working remotely because they're based in San Francisco and, and they allowed me to, to stay in Melbourne and, and work remotely. Uh, I stayed there for about 18 months until the end of 2020. Uh, and then I, I, I kind of felt bad because I was, wasn't able to dedicate the time to Set Protocol because I was so... In, in, so I was spending so much time doing daily way, doing mm -hmm. ethub stuff, being involved with the community that I uh, and I could and at that point uh, because it was the bull market, I could sustain myself. Um, I was like, well, wow, I 
I kind of made a lot of money in a short period of time because of all the investments I made in the bear market. And then uh, it kind of paid off in, in 2020. So I, I, I was like, okay, well, I, um, and my, and my boss at set protocol was very understanding of this. I was like, look, my journey's taking me this direction. Mm -hmm. Um, and I can't dedicate the time to, to set protocol anymore. So, uh, you know, I, I stepped down, I mean, I'm still an advisor to them, but like I stepped down from full-time work, uh, and have been just doing the daily way, uh, as my, I mean, I don't make any money from the daily way, but it's like my main kind of job, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then I do a bunch of other things uh, around that. Uh, but, but yeah, the, the timing thing was funny because when I was at my normie job, I was doing ETH hub, uh, but it was all on, on the side. So I basically work my normie job and then do all the ETH hub stuff on the side. It was very demanding of my, of my time, basically took up all of my time. Uh, but from, from there, uh, yeah, I mean, I had to, to, I mean, I was looking for a crypto job in 2019, like from the start of the year, but it was very hard to find one because there wasn't much opportunity back then. Uh, there wasn't much funding going on, yeah. but then, yeah, I, I found set mid 2019. I was super excited, joined the team there. Uh, traveled to see them, you know, traveled to all these conferences finally in, in 2019. But then of course, COVID also dictated a lot of things as well. Like uh, it, it changed a lot of the landscape, but I think because the bull market came, uh, yeah, it was just, I, I entered a different phase in my life. So I, I kind of transitioned into just doing full-time education. Great. Wonderful. So what did you tell your friends and family, like in real life, like what you were doing? Did you like say you were like working for a digital startup or something, or did you tell them the truth? Like, how did that go in the beginning slash later? Yeah, I mean, obviously, none of them really understood uh, crypto at all, um, let alone Ethereum. I mean, you could explain Bitcoin to them in, I guess, layman's terms of it's a digital gold, so to so to speak. I mean, they didn't really understand that either. <laughs> but I, I really just said I was working for for a startup in in the crypto industry, and they, as I said, they didn't know what that meant, but. Uh, I mean, not everyone really had faith in me. I mean, I would say most people didn't really have faith in it. They, they, they kind of viewed it as me taking a big risk and leaving this cushy normie job that I had, you know, decently paying normie job to to go into this new thing where I, effect, I, I did take a pay cut to go into it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very, very early stage and it was no guarantee that it was going to succeed or anything like that. So yeah, it was more like they were just confused by, by the move, I think. But yeah. uh, I, I think as time went on and as the industry grew and grew and they started hearing about it in the mainstream media, of course, they're like, wow, okay. You know, Anthony was actually onto something here. He actually, you know, put his weight behind it. He took the risk, but it seems to be to kind of be paying off there and yeah. i think as as the bull market went on you know i moved into my own place instead of uh, living where i used to live and and uh I, you know I, I i think people saw that and they're like wow he must be you know doing well with this with this thing so it kind of changed from skepticism to you know anthony made the right decision sort of thing but i never really kind of cared what people thought honestly if i did i wouldn't have done what i did it was always I had faith in it. I believed in it. I knew that I was onto something, uh, and and I chased that basically. That was that was the only thing that was in my mind at the time, uh, and that's why I think, I, I mean, people said things here and there, but I never really paid attention to it. I was like, you know, you can believe what you want to believe. I'm going to chase my dreams. I'm going to chase my passion, and that's all I can do, really. But I wouldn't say anyone ever told me like straight. They didn't say to my face, "You're making a mistake. You know, this is really risky. You should do this." I, I didn't really have anyone like that in my life. I think I cut a lot of those people out of my life early on because I didn't want to have to deal with that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I had, I, I had support from, from my fiance, from, from my parents uh, and everything when I, for, for everything that I was doing. Uh, so I never really felt like people were, were unsupportive, but there were people that are uh, like 
in, I guess, like the wider circle of people that I knew that definitely viewed it as like a super risky decision. They didn't understand what I was doing, but they still don't understand what I'm doing, to be fair. Like they, they don't get the industry, um, uh, at least the weeds of the industry. They yeah. still think I'm like a day trader that just, uh, you know, that just gambles on the, on the crypto market. And then when I explain to them, no, I actually don't do any trading, really. I just uh, invest in, and, and, and do a lot of the educational stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say they understand it, but they, they kind of understand it more than they did uh, if, if I don't explain it to them. So do you think then like later as the bull run happened and like people became more aware of crypto in like 2020, 2021 kind of thing, do you think there was the opposite where there was like jealousy or any kind of uh, animosity towards you from that? Like, did you notice anything like that from people that you knew in the past? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, there, there is definitely like jealousy uh, from from a fair few people. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who who are very, I guess you could say proud of me. And they gave me kudos for, for taking the risk and actually seeing it and, and being like a, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a visionary, but like they, actually, like they saw that, that I saw things early on and I put my weight behind it and it worked out for me. But there is always going to be jealousy and envy and there are always going to be people that want to copy what you did. So I get constantly people coming up to me and saying, you know, how can I get started with this? How can I do what you did? And then I explained to them what I actually did. I didn't just put money into crypto. I, I actually put my entire life into it. And they, I can, I can notice them backing off slowly, slowly mm -hmm. from that. And, and, and like they have all these, um, they have a, a shine in their eyes and they first ask me about it because they think, oh, you know, he's got all the answers. He's going to exactly. unlock my, uh, unlock my, my riches for me. And then yeah. I tell them what i did and how much work i put in how much i sacrificed and they slowly kind of retreat and they're like <laughs> wow okay this isn't going to make me rich quick or anything like that i actually have to put in work and they yep. lose interest uh from from that point so i think one that's how i kind of shut them down because they want me to give them investment advice and i never do that i ne will never give anyone investment advice uh <laughs> but i just tell them like i just you know this is what i do i buy eth and i say to them like the reason why i'm not going to tell you when to buy ETH is because ETH is this price today, but it could easily be much lower than it is today. And can you handle that volatility? You, you probably can't. Can I handle it? Yes, because I bought ETH much earlier than than the prices they are today. Yeah. So for you buying ETH at like $2,000 and then it goes to $1,000, that is a massive loss for you, right? That you are mm -hmm. down 50% and you don't have any other buys to back that up. Whereas for me, my average purchase price of ETH is much lower than than that. So when you consider all of that, and, and my position just generally is much different to theirs, I, I explain that to them. I, I'm just like, you know, I wasn't always in this position, but I can't possibly give you any kind of advice that applies to you because yeah. my position is very, very different uh, from from your, your position. So you got famous, right? Like you were mm -hmm. one of the most well-known people in crypto space on, on YouTube, on Twitter. Like now you have what, about a quarter of a million followers on Twitter, like uh, thousands, tens of thousands of subscribers on YouTube. Um, people know you. Um, you've mentioned some like negatives that have come with that. Can you like talk about that a little bit? I guess the, the biggest negative would be that uh, you get a lot of haters in that as well. Like because people, a lot of people know you because you're very visible. You definitely get a lot of people that, that hate on you for whatever, especially in crypto where it's very tribal, right? So obviously there'll be people that call me an ETH maxi, for example, because I just focus on Ethereum. They'll, especially in the bull market, there'll be people saying to me, you know, you're wrong. Ethereum is broken. It can't scale. You know, fees are high, blah, blah, blah. All the stuff we've, we've all heard before. But because I'm so so public and and have such a big uh, big presence, I see a lot of those comments uh, from from all directions, like whether yeah. it's... Um, in different, different, different Discord channels or on Twitter or even on Reddit sometimes. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's, there's a big element of that. But on top of that as well, I think that people just love to hate the people that have 
succeeded or the people mm-hmm. that are very visible. It's just, just there's just a percentage of people who do that, and whether that's jealousy or envy, it, it doesn't really matter. It just it just exists. So, and, and then also on top of that, you have to be very very careful when you have such a large presence in what you say, because anything you say can be used against you. Just to use that saying, mm-hmm. uh, by the community at large, uh, and 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 it'll be used against you to quote unquote, cancel you or mm-hmm. to show that, oh, wow, look at this guy. He was only acting uh, uh, as being like a good guy. He's actually a bad guy underneath it all. And look at all these shady dealings. So you have to be extremely careful about uh, what you say and also who you hang around with and who you talk to and who you, uh, who, uh, the company that you keep. Yeah. So that's why for me, I mean, I, uh, people have said to me that like, I called out all the scammers from the, the, this cycle, right? I, I, I was, I was pretty on the ball with calling out the scammers and the grifters very early on. And I think that's just a reaction to my audience and, and, and having to be acutely aware of who is a good person to hang around with and who is not a good person to hang around with and, and surround myself with. So I, I don't know if I'd call it a negative. Uh, it's, it, it is actually probably a positive. It helps me and prevents me from blowing up and lets me tell people, or make people aware of these people. Uh, but but yeah, you definitely got to be much more careful. I can't just be fast and loose with what I say. And yeah. if I am, I very quickly get called out on it. It's it's not like I can hide from it or anything like that. So so yeah, it, it's definitely just being more aware of 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 your, your following and how many, how many people pay attention to what you're saying and doing. Uh, and then obviously, because I have a lot of opinions, because I do an educational show and, and I, I talk a lot and I tweet a lot, people will come at me with that, but you just got to develop a thicker skin and and get used to it and get used to people disagreeing with you on, on pretty much everything that you say, which is fine. Uh, But there is a definitely a very big toxic side of it, especially when there's bull markets going on like last year where people would just constantly attack me saying, you're just an Mm -hmm. ETH maxi. You only, you know, you only don't like this because it's going to hurt your ETH bags and this and that and that. And I'm just like, guys, like that's not it at all. Like I have legitimate reasons why I don't like these other layer ones or think that they're not actually, useful or think that's you know some of them are actually outright scams uh and, and just dealing with that and dealing with all the noise can be difficult but I, I think at this point in time i've developed a pretty thick skin uh from all the yeah. experience and and i can deal with it yeah so what are you enjoying about the bear market now like um is there anything that you're enjoying about it with this like yeah, I mean, this I, whole I, the like toxicity that was around last year during the peak of the bull, like I guess a lot of that's gone away now, right? Because people have just left the space. So is that something you're enjoying? Like what 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 are you what are the positives you're getting right now, in terms of community? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think what I'm enjoying the most is all the noise is gone, and it's just pure signal now of uh, the community uh, pro- providing uh, really va- relevant information, really relevant signal. There's no noise of people calling me like an ETH maxi anymore. There's no noise of the bull market, uh, just basically keeping all my attention. Uh, and and it's amazing to see like all the building going on, not just at the layer one protocol level, but also on layer twos and the apps that are that are building. Like all that is still going and going hard like these builders haven't stopped and the layer twos especially are capturing my attention because they're growing so nicely in a bear market right like they're actually all growing in a bear market and we're not even we haven't even scratched the surface of what's possible because we still don't have proto dank sharding we still don't have decentralization of these l2s yet we still don't have tokens for some of them yet as well Mm -hmm. which can unlock even more um potential for them um and this is as i said all happening in a bear market I, I I struggle to see what the bull market's going to be like for these things. It's going to go crazy. So I, I think that's what's keeping my attention right now, and 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 what I'm super excited about is that even though it's a it's a bear market, even though so much of the activity that we saw last year has disappeared, 
it seems that everything's coming home to Ethereum right now. Like Ethereum mm. is really benefiting the most from this bear market. And and it's reflecting in the in the market as well because the ETH BTC ratio is not crashing like it did in 2018 exactly. and 2019. Yeah. It is it is basically flat on the year against against Bitcoin. And I think that is a huge vote of confidence for everything Ethereum has done. The merge, ERP one five five nine, all the uh, the layer twos, the apps, the pro the other protocol upgrades, it's all coming together so nicely, and Ethereum is being rewarded for that work in a bear market uh, much more than it was in in a bull market. And I think the next time a bull market rolls around, Ethereum is going to be the the greatest beneficiary of of that demand, especially with these L twos. So yeah, there's just too much stuff to, to to pay attention to to be excited about. So much stuff happening, uh, and, and really, it's all happening in Ethereum. Absolutely. It's so exciting to see that. And um, I totally see that, right? Because we're part of the same communities. We read the same things mm -hmm. and we're excited about the same things. And I really love that. So, but one of the communities that I'm a lot more involved in than you are, although you are involved in is the Rocket Pool community, of course, right? So mm -hmm. I'm in there every day and talking every day, reading every day, gathering content every day and sharing that every day. And you do that for the Ethereum ecosystem as a whole, of course. But, um, you know, you've being a kind of periphery, a peripheral member of the Rocket Pool community. When did you hear about Rocket Pool and like what made you pop into the trading channel and like talk to people there? Yeah, so I mean, Rocket Pool has been around for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, since yeah. basically 2017 or yeah. even maybe earlier than that as, a, as an idea. So. But yeah, yeah. So so I'd known about it for, for a long time, but because... I think Rockapool, because they were kind of married to the Ethereum staking roadmap, mm -hmm. they had to move with it, right? So it took them a long time to actually deliver something because it took a long time for Ethereum proof of stake to be delivered. Yeah. So I think I didn't really start paying proper attention to it until their product actually went live. Yeah. Uh, and and also like, uh, not just live, but like in on the test nets and yeah. it actually came into view of what Rockapool would actually look like. So that was 2021 slash 2022, basically. Yeah. And then also- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. And also why why I started paying attention to it more and taking it more seriously was because of the people that were that were behind uh, that were uh, promoting it and, and and kind of being advocates for it. Uh, a big person was definitely Superfizz. I was friends with Superfizz. I'd known him. We'd 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 been talking a lot. Um and he like if he puts his weight behind something, I listen because he's a very legitimate community member. He's very careful about what he puts his personal uh weight behind. But there's also uh Lamboshi as well, like just mm -hmm. the Eat Staker community generally. I'd known of them, I'd followed them and I trusted in their judgment and they were talking about it um there was like patricio with was a big holder of rocker pool he was always talking to me about it saying hey you know you should check it out and then i finally did like start paying more and more attention to it and i I started to see that this community in Rockapool was very similar to the Ethereum community. There were there were missionaries and not mercenaries. Yes, there was a, a token involved, but it was the same with Ethereum having ETH. Like uh, and these people had a vested interest in in being part of this community and making sure that there was value driven to this token. Uh, and and then I just kept getting more and more involved. I paid more attention, as much attention as I could. It was hard for me to pay attention to any one project, but I paid more and more attention. And then uh, I, I, I kind of looked at, um, you know, Bankless getting involved with it as well. They were yeah. joined as an ODAO member. I'm like, this is really cool. Like this community is actually very organic, very missionary, very aligned with Ethereum values. And then I just, I, I followed it more closely and, and that kept snowballing as time went on. And then when the opportunity came up for me to be a, an ODAO member, I was like, wow, okay, this is like a perfect opportunity for me to be involved with Rocket Pool in, in, in as much of a way as I can be involved with, with, with Rocket Pool, but also uh, give back to the community as well. Like people will know that 
all the ODAO rewards that I'm getting are going to be sent to the Protocol Guild, which is uh, public goods funding for core developers on Ethereum. So, and then I, I and then I spun up mini pools for the first time, and I realized like how easy it was to do that, and and the documentation behind it, and all the love that had gone into it. Yeah. And I finally, you know, came to that point where I'm like, you know, this this protocol is just as awesome as Ethereum. It's very rare for me to come to to that point with with projects because. There's so many scams as well. Not to say that I ever thought Rockapool was a scam, but there's so many scams. There's so many projects that look legit that turn out to be not legit. But then I, I just looked at the longevity of Rockapool. I looked at the the developers and the community, how long they'd been around for, how much faith that they had put into this thing, and and the fact that it actually works and it actually works really well and it's growing. And I was like, I want to help. I want to help you in any way that I can. Uh, and that's what I'm doing with the ODA. That's what I'm doing by spinning up mini pools and, and just basically highlighting updates from Rockapool when they come out and getting more, more people involved and inspiring more people to set up their own mini pools or get involved. So it, it was really kind of a, a long journey for me with Rockapool. But in terms of being more public about them and being comfortable being more public about them, that's probably the last year or so where I saw people that I respected putting their weight behind uh, the, this, this project. And then uh, I was comfortable putting my weight behind it as well. And then I was comfortable putting my ETH behind it too, which is yeah. even bigger than just putting my, my public persona behind it. So that's that was kind of my journey with with Rockapool, but I don't blame Rockapool for taking so long to come to mainnet because, as I said, they were stuck following the Ethereum protocol roadmap, the Ethereum staking roadmap, but they stuck it out. They stuck with it, just like I stuck with Ethereum through all the years. They did too, and I really respect people who stick it out for the long term and don't just pivot. I mean, the Rockapool creators could have been like, "Oh well, you know, this is this is kind of failed. The project failed. Let's move on to the next thing." And they could have reissued a new token. They could have started a new project. But they didn't. They stuck the course. They stayed the course. They stayed with all the different roadmap changes, uh, and they developed something that is is used by a wide range of people today, and that a community absolutely loves. So I, I really respect the Rockapool core team and the community uh, for for that. It also helps that the core team is mostly Australian, so like the yeah yeah that's, a, that's definitely a big big plus. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So. Um, one of the things about Rocket Pool that's so great, and you know how it's so Ethereum aligned, right? It's like you know from the beginning, the the teams pushed client diversity, which was big mm -hmm. things that were happening in the wider Ethereum space. We've also pushed like decentralization, permissionlessness, trustlessness, which are all like huge uh, foundation blocks for uh, the Rocket Pool protocol and values that the communities kind of adhere to and um, really mm -hmm. like held on tight to. You know, during ups and downs that have happened. And also, I think that one of the things that so many of the people that you respect, like you mentioned, like Superphase and others, they're also like respect, they're respected members of the Rockable community as well, right? So there's a kind mm -hmm. of legitimacy that comes across. There are other projects, I'm sure, in Ethereum that, you know, had... Uh, good values and good qualities that just never were able to take off and rocket pool in a sense is lucky that that was able to happen you know there were a few fortuitous events along the way like you mentioned patricio like patricio was a huge supporter in the early days when things were looking really rough and without that you know the protocol might not be here now so um mm -hmm. there's definitely been elements of luck along the way that um, and you know sheer tenacity from the team and the community as well so all those things are really great and now we're seeing the the fruit of that right like we're seeing that rocket pool now has uh, over 2000 node operators which is which i think is the fifth most if you add the list of all layer ones that are out there mm -hmm. i think there's like bitcoin ethereum and then zcash and pretty much I think one or two others, Dogecoin maybe, and then it's it's Rocket Pool, which is mm -hmm. absolutely phenomenal when you think about it. It's a pro protocol that's just a year, just over a year on mainnet. That's fantastic. We've got um, ten thousand mini pools, um, 
And there's a lot of um, upgrades that are coming in the next few months and next year that have, you know, the protocol, like in the, the team, the community really excited as well. So you're getting involved at a really great time. And um, your excitement that you have for Rocket Pool and that you show in the Daily Goway, I think is clear for everyone to see. But it's not just that you're shilling it, right? It's that there's mm -hmm. literally a product here that is so aligned with Ethereum that you feel comfortable talking about it in the same breath as you talk about Ethereum and with all these other great pro protocols and projects that you talk about. And I think people are taking note of that now in a way that they maybe didn't like two years ago because Lido was like the big thing on the scene and that was just gobbling up everything. But now people are like, hey, wait, you know, there's another way of doing it. Um, one of the things that the community found really interesting a few days ago was after you spun up your mini pool, um, we saw your tweets with Kobe um and like, mm -hmm. like whoa that you set up a mini pool like what's going on with that like you know i wouldn't i wouldn't do that and of course i'm not going to ask you to divulge details of that conversation or not but you know these are people who are very very prominent in the crypto space and you know they're asking questions now because it's you representing it in a way do you know what i mean and like the legitimacy mm -hmm. that you bring with it so i think it's a really great like like symbiotic relationship of you being on the odao so are you aware of any of the controversies in the community about the ODAO and like what people think of it? And uh, do you know anything about that? I mean, maybe not obviously as much as, as you do because you follow it so closely. But yeah. I think the, the big thing that um, that I've seen the community complain about is that the ODAO rewards are too high. They think that the amount of RPL that are going to the ODAO members is is too much compared to the work that they do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, I, I definitely sympathize with that. It, it's kind of hard to strike that balance, uh, especially, you know, the community is obviously very sensitive towards the RPL price. And if they see the, the node operator selling their RPL as soon as they get it, it can be detrimental for them. And that actually factored into my decision to donate my rewards as well because I didn't want to be seen as someone who was selling and and, and I'd have to actually sell pretty much half of my rewards tax. for tax yeah uh, and and I, I think people they understand that but they still don't want to see that so for me mm -hmm. I was like okay what, what was the what was the best way to actually you know keep the community happy with this because I, I don't need the RPL rewards like I'm fine with with not get, with not getting them um so I was just like okay well let's give it to the ethereum core developers who uh, the reason why Rockapool even exists in the first place right like yeah. without them building staking rocker pool wouldn't be able to to exist as a project so that that was my logic there but yeah that, that's the that's the biggest controversy that i've been followed kind of loosely was that around the, the odell members getting too much uh rewards for the work that they're doing but maybe there's other ones that you think are more important no, than no, that, that, or, that or... was the main thing that i was kind of alluding towards and the, the yep. reason why i was bringing it up was because when when you got added to the odell there was huge support around that from the community mm -hmm. and the reason for that was because of your gesturing about donating your income to the protocol guild right i remember when mm -hmm. you first mentioned it on the daily way and you were like you know i need to figure out what the tax process is going to be like or what i can do but um this is my idea of what i want to do and i guess i'm not sure exactly how you set it up but it's likely be that you'll just set your withdrawal address to their their, their wallet so you won't come into contact with the rpl ever so you won't be tax liable right which is fantastic and i saw that you said on twitter as well that look what they do with it is up to them if they want to sell it or hold it like that's not up to you anymore you can't tell them that and i think that's legitimate as well and those kind of things and that those you know positions that you've taken have i think been really well respected in the community and i think people have kind of welcomed you with open arms i don't know if mm -hmm. have you noticed that like how how have things been for you like vis-a-vis -vis the Rocket Pool community over the last like couple of months since we found out that you're going to be coming on the order. 
Yeah, I mean, even before I was uh, going to be coming into the ODAO, uh, people treated me amazingly. I mean, I always felt like really, really respected and at home whenever I jumped into the Rockerpool Discord and and had a bit of a chat with people when I had some time. I always felt incredibly welcomed there. But especially with the with the ODAO stuff, like people resonating with my idea to donate the rewards and and really wanting me on board and and really uh, kind of being excited about me being on board. Like I really loved that, and and because I felt like that, it kind of maybe pushed me to to uh, add more legitimacy legitimacy to the Rockerpool project as well myself. Like, as I was saying before, uh, it, I mean, when we were talking about the negatives of having such a public persona, one of the negatives that I forgot to mention was that I can't, I have to be very careful about which projects I put my weight behind because people take that as signal that this project is legitimate, right? Yeah. So if I put my weight behind a project that turns out to be dodgy or, or a scam, uh, even though it didn't look like it to begin with, it, I take a very big hit from that. And I actually feel really bad about that too, because I'm like, I put my weight behind this thing and it's not actually uh, anything good. And I, I feel bad about misleading people. So so with Rockapool, I feel incredibly comfortable putting my weight behind Rockapool and sharing with people like, hey, I have mini pools set up and here's how to do it yourself. And, and you should you should set up a mini pool if you can. You know, you obviously need the ETH and the RPL, but if you've got that, you should definitely set one up and this is how you do it. You know, follow the documentation and this is the hardware. Uh, so I, I felt much more comfortable putting my weight behind Rockapool than, than pretty much most projects in this ecosystem uh, simply because of the welcome arms, the, the fact that I knew that um, the Rockable community was was missionaries, not mercenaries, and that the Rockable had been around for, for such a long time. But yeah, I've, I've always felt welcome and at home in, in Rockable. And it's honestly quite hard to find uh, somewhere that I think welcomes me, not because I'm a big name in the ecosystem and I can shill the project. They're welcoming me because they actually want me on board because they agree with my values and they, they love yeah. the, the, the stuff that I do. So yeah, definitely one of the only communities where I feel that. And that's one of the reasons why I, I'm i so happy that you're here now talking to us, right? Like, um, I've done an interview with Superfiz before, but I've not interviewed any other ODAO members. <laughs> like, it's mm -hmm. not, like, they, they're they doing great job and I'm not, you know, trying to say any, cast any aspersions towards them, but we don't see them in the community as much. We don't see them, like, talking about the same kind of things that we're talking about the way that you do. And I think that's really great, you know, like, it really... Like the fact that you just pop in, like you pop in Superfiz, of course, just lives there. So that's great. Um, <laughs> Buddha, who is, you know, with the Beacon Chain, he's on the ODAO and he's also in trading quite a lot. But I think the three of you are probably like the most visible like ODAO members. And mm -hmm. um, that's really, that's really great. And and then there's Yorick as well, who is uh, with a crypto manufacturer who's on the ODAO too. But um, yeah, th there's a few people who are around, but like, it's really great that, you know, the the values and the the positions that are taken by communities are so symbiotic and that's really great to see so one of the things that we're really excited about in the community is um the big things that are happening in this coming year for rocket pool like how much are you up to date with like the developments that are taking place and you know the the roadmap items for rocket pool itself yeah, I have a, I have a kind of probably a loose high level understanding. I think the mm -hmm. thing that I, I, it seems to people are most excited about is the, the leb eights and the leb fours, they're calling it right. We're reducing that minimum ETH requirement for spinning up a mini pool, which I totally get. I mean, that is going to be, I've talked about it on the refill, but that is going to be amazing to get more and more people in and spinning up mini pools. But outside of that, yeah, I, I probably have like a really high level overview of, of things, not, not too deep in the weeds there, but uh, I, yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems people are most excited about that, those uh, leb eight and lab four update yeah exactly so um leb updates are probably going to be here at the end of february and mm -hmm. the idea is that um, the current mini pools if you have a 16 eth mini pool you'll be able to convert that into two eight eth mini pools 
and the effect mm-hmm. of that is that um right now you get 16 node operator eth to be able to mint 16 r eth mm-hmm. however in the future you will need eight eight node operator eth to mint 24 RETH. So the dynamics mm-hmm. change completely. Like the 16 ETH you bring now will then be able to provide 20, 48 new RETH. So the scope for minting RETH will, will grow at like massively, like three times as much. And then with LEB4s, it'll go seven times as much. And hopefully LEB2s at the end of 2023 will give you 15 times the capacity of growth that um, we have currently. So... The way that it will work is if we didn't add a single new node operator right now, and we had only the 2000 that we have now, we would be able to mint 2.5 million RETH from 150,000 where we are right now. So that would definitely take us up there with like the big boys, right? Of of mm-hmm. staking uh, market share. So that's kind of the reason why I mentioned that was because I wanted to talk about staking market share and where we stand right now. So, you know, when it comes to liquid staking derivatives, the elephant in every room and the like a mammoth in every room is is Lido, right? And mm-hmm, they're, they're mm-hmm. a huge position. Um, you've talked about it on the Daily Gway quite a lot about how you're not too worried about their position. Can you tell, uh, tell us a little bit about why you're not too worried about it and what you see happening that um, like kind of alleviates some of your worries that might that other people might have? Yeah, so I have an extremely, I guess, nuanced view on staking just generally. Uh, And I think that it might be something that a lot of people disagree with me on or maybe have different opinions on, and that's totally fine. But my my general high-level view of the staking ecosystem at large, like not just any one operator, but at large, is that in Ethereum or in any blockchain, the last line of defense is always the social layer, right? If anything goes wrong, like the social layer is what kind of fixes it um, because there are there, not everything can be done technically. Like for example, if there was uh, censorship at the attestation level rather than the block, uh, the um, transaction inclusion level, uh, there would need to be a social slashing event. And that can only be done by the social layer. It cannot be done pure technically, right? We can't do slashing for that like we can for, you know, double signing or, or surround voting and things exactly. like that, right? So- so from that perspective, I look at the staking market share and I think to myself, okay, it's not ideal. It's far from ideal. Like obviously Lido having 30% is a, is a huge mammoth in the room, as you said. And there are centralized exchanges that have large shares as well. Mm-hmm. And we want to encourage more solo stakers. We want to encourage more rocker pool stakers. But the way I look at it is that even though Lido has 30% of the stake, they don't have 30% of the influence on the network. Just because you have a lot of stake doesn't give you outsized influence. The influence on the network, it comes from the community, comes from the social layer itself. So because I believe the social layer of Ethereum is so strong and cares so much about the values of decentralization uh, and and cares about its other core values like um, like censorship resistance and freedom and, and all those good things that we all care about in Ethereum, I don't consider it to be an existential risk that Lido has 30% of, of the market share, right? From from that perspective. Yeah. And people can disagree with that and have different opinions on that. And I totally uh, understand that. But where it becomes a, a definite issue is that like we want to encourage as many people as possible to have a literal stake in the ecosystem uh, and a decentralized stake in the ecosystem rather than a centralized one or rather than giving these entities so much power where they can potentially one day do a, a thing where they creep 
over time into the governance process and end up having an outsized voice in in the community over time. Like right now, I don't think they do. I don't yeah. think Lido has a 30% share of the voice of the, th the social layer. But because if, if, if they persist at that market share, if they keep uh, inserting themselves into the Ethereum governance process slowly as time goes on, it can potentially lead to an outsized influence in, in the social layer more than what they have today. So th that, that would be the, the concern there. Um, but maybe you have a different opinion on this, but that's my general kind of high level view of, of staking in that we have the, the in protocol ways to punish people for doing things wrong with, with slashing. And then we have the extra protocol things like social slashing to punish uh, these actors, even though it would be messy, very, very messy, obviously, uh, and even though it would, would lead to a lot of collateral damage. We still have those mechanisms. Um, but and on, on, I should mention on the collateral damage front, that's another reason why we want to have a more dis distributed and decentralized staking ecosystem is to minimize any collateral damage that could eventuate from a social slashing. So for example, if um, a centralized exchange engages in a test station level censorship and they have like 10% of the network uh, and then we socially slash them, the fallout from that would be a lot less than it would be if they had 30% of the network. So it, it, as I said, it's a very nuanced topic. There's many different ways you can kind of explain it and give your own view on things but my general high level view is at least right now uh i don't think you know these operators have the percentage influence over the over the social layer as they do over the um, the network technically uh and and we, i mean we can go into more about that but I, i'd be curious to know if you maybe align with that or have different opinions on that i mean i know people do but yeah i think um i i, I agree with a lot of what you're saying that like the the their influence on on governance is not that it's like minuscule compared to the weight of staking they have. So I totally agree with that. And I also agree with the fact that they're not going to jeopardize anything by being bad actors on the Ethereum network right now. So I don't mm -hmm. think, I think I agree with you on that as well. However, they have signaled at times, okay, they've been given the opportunity to signal alignment with the wider Ethereum community at times. And that Lido community has chosen to not take that chance mm -hmm. like one of the mm -hmm. things was like superphase had a campaign about you know protocols limiting themselves to 22 percent of the network to be like healthy actors and um they they voted 99.9 percent .9 in against that basically rejecting that mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. and in contrast the rocket pool community the community as well as the developers were quick to release statements saying that you know this um the fizz's um suggestions are in line with our community and our values and our ideals and this is something that we are signaling the support of basically so it's very contrasting um stance there the thing that i'm interested in is the idea that you brought up in the daily Gui a few times of like the great reshuffling like your idea that once withdrawals open people kind of move their stake around and um things will look a lot we'll have a much better understanding of what things look like uh, at that point and i agree with that as well is that like the great reshuffling will definitely be an opportunity for stakers to move things around people maybe to start solo staking people to start rocket pool nodes people to swap their steth for reth you know things like that and that i think would be something really exciting um and a big opportunity for rocket pool to grow um the main difference i think that i have with your approach is this idea that you know things will just kind of like that will happen in the great reshuffling whereas i think that people like solo stakers people like eth staker community people like eth finance and like um certain sections of ethereum crypto twitter and of course the rocket pool community will have to add like make it a huge PR campaign basically of saying this is happening we need to as a community now fix the mistakes that we made early on 
and like giving share to players that really doesn't didn't deserve to have that share of the market and mm-hmm. we need to be a lot more forceful maybe forceful is too strong a word but a lot more um willing to educate people about the the pitfalls of where we are and the potential problems of where we are right not necessarily like actual problems but potential problems so that i think that's where we differ is that um maybe and correct me if i'm wrong like you think that it'll just kind of happen and i think that we kind of have to make it happen and we both hope that it will happen right but it's just i did i do you think i explained myself clearly enough on what you, you, no, you, you did yeah. You did explain yourself clearly, but I, I would say that I don't think that it's just going to happen on its own. Uh, and yeah. maybe I've given that impression wrongly when I'm, ta- I'm talking about this great reshuffling thesis that I have. Um, but no, it's definitely not going to happen on its own. I think what I mean by that is that the community has an opportunity post-withdrawals mm-hmm. to will this great reshuffling yeah. into existence through all the things that you you mentioned. So I think we're fully aligned on that. And great. going back to what we were saying earlier about the LEBs, right, and, and improving capital efficiency for that is one technical solution among many and and then there's social solutions as well that we can push to to will this thing into reality yeah. i think my main point is that it can't be done now because there's no withdrawals enabled right you ha- we have to actually wait until the point of withdrawals for that reshuffling to take place because no one can actually withdraw from the beacon chain it can happen at the lsd level but yeah. there are issues with that because of the the discount premiums. like whales for yeah and the premiums and the discounts because whales for example yes it may only be a two or three percent discount but for a big staker that's a lot right and that's that could wipe out all the rewards yeah exactly exactly so i think that when you can close that loop and you can actually withdraw from the beacon chain itself and then move your eth to somewhere else we're probably going to see more of a, of, a, of a reshuffling there but in saying that it's not just going to happen on its own. We can't just sit on our hands and be like, oh, well, yeah, everyone's going to just reshuffle and everything's going to be great. No, yeah. we need to do a very strong social push, which is yeah. I'm, which I'm going to definitely do and be a part of. And uh, it's definitely a perfect opportunity for Rockapool as a community to come together and do a whole campaign around it, especially if LEBs are in place, which they which they should be by that point. Uh, and, and to get the more people involved like that. Um, and I'm very hopeful in that. And as I said, it goes back to the strong social layer that Ethereum has. I think because we have such a strong social layer, we can actually will that reshuffling into, into existence. Existence, yeah, exactly. And that's so exciting. So there's three things that are happening with Rocket Pool in the next few months that will help that reshuffling. The first one we've talked about is the LEBs. So people who are staking currently will be able to just make their ETH just a lot more efficient, which is going to be Mm -hmm. tremendous. The second thing is solo staker migration. So people Mm -hmm. who are solo staking right now and maybe... Okay, there's like a real like fine nuance uh, point here um, about like the level of decentralization, right? So we all agree that solo staking from home is like the most decentralized and the best, best in class gold standard staking. However... I think rocket pool staking because of the way um, it's set up, you know, you're still staking from home. You're still doing, you're still doing the same activities that a solo staker does. It's like, like if, if solo staking is a plus and rocket pool is a, and other things are like mm-hmm. B's and C's mm-hmm. and D's. Right. So I think at that point, if there's any solo stakers who care about profit, even a little bit, like even a tiny bit, which I'm sure a lot of them do, they'll realize that running a rocket pool node instead of solo staking is vastly more profitable and because Mm -hmm. of that we'll be able to 
will be able to attract a fair chunk of solo stakers to Rocket Pool. So solo staker migration is code that's written. It will be in Atlas in the same code as the LEB8s, which not many people know about, which is going to be really exciting. And then there's more code that's pretty much written, but hasn't been audited yet. And it will probably come maybe in six months time is my mm -hmm. estimation is um, something called SaaS, which is staking as a service as Rocket Pool. Mm -hmm. So we'll have uh, people who will have contracts set up in such a way that you would be able to give your ETH to that person or your RPL to that person. And they would stake it on your behalf and they'll take a small percentage and they'll give the rest back to you. So those three things, I think, will be in the position where we can suck up a lot of, um, as Rocket Pool, Rocket Pool protocol can suck up a lot of the gaps that are there now and really grow. And I think that's what we're really excited about seeing this year. I think like 2023 is going to be like the year of Rocket Pool. Um, mm -hmm. in a way that we haven't seen yet, even more so than 2022. So that's extremely exciting for the community. And I'm trying my best to be a cheerleader of that, just like you're saying you are, you know, going into going into um, the withdrawals happening and these migrations being possible, I'm going to be shouting it from the rooftops to everyone who listen, right? Like to make sure that um, we get as many people hearing about this as possible. So that's definitely something that I think, um, I kind of agree with you that we'll have to see where we stand in um in basically three four months time withdrawals will be here in end of march it looks like right like mm -hmm. hopefully hopefully by the end of march which would be absolutely fantastic um well, let's uh, change direction a little bit and like withdrawals of course would complete the merge aspect of the ethereum roadmap um we're working on the surge right now you know proto dank sharding is the first step towards that to getting more um scalability for ethereum what are you looking forward to on the Ethereum roadmap? And what things do you think are important for people to pay attention to that they might not be paying attention to just yet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, I mean, it's funny because like there's all those different names that Vitalik has given to the Ethereum roadmap that we all know about, you know, the merge, the verge, the scourge, things like yeah. that. It, it, it seems that the Ethereum community is much more attuned to the roadmap because of that now. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's, it's not as fragmented as it once was. They're definitely paying attention to uh, the, I guess, like surge a lot more with EIP 4844 and proto dank sharding and understanding that uh, sharding has actually changed completely from what it once was. And it's now for the L2s rather than scale, uh, rather than for the L1 execution environments so i think in, term, in terms of like something that most people probably aren't paying attention to right now it's the stuff happening maybe maybe with the verge which i think is is something that's maybe just as important as the as the surge because with with vertical trees and state expiry and all that good stuff that could potentially come with that and like clients, it basically makes it so that we can scale layer one even more uh, at, for, for, for these layer twos. So the I mean, maybe the verge should belong in, in the surge, but I think Vitalik split it out because it's more than just this uh, kind of potential scalability upgrade. It does, yeah. it does a lot of uh, neat things under the hood. Um, but, uh, and, and I think it's funny because the, the scourge was added recently um, and that's basically the roadmap item to deal with censorship on Ethereum uh, and deal with MEV on Ethereum. And I think people are paying attention to that uh, as well. Like, as I said, because this roadmap has been put together in such an easy to explain way with memes behind it, 
people are much more aware of the things happening now, um, which which is kind of making my job easier because it means I don't have to explain the background of a lot of these things. I can just jump right into them when I'm talking about them on the refuel. But yeah, I, I would suggest if there's one thing people should be paying attention to more is probably the verge uh, because it's just something that I don't see talked about too much, maybe because it's a bit more technical than the other things. But yeah, in terms of the the top things I'm paying attention to, it's definitely the, the surge and the scourge. Uh, but yeah, the verge is, is one thing that I think people should be paying more attention to. Yeah, one of the great things about the verge is with light clients, we'll be able to run full nodes on our cell phones, right? Like mm-hmm. that would be absolutely amazing because right now there is still a technical barrier to running nodes at home. Like mm-hmm. the Rock 5B is the latest hardware that's like taking the staking community by storm. Like it's yep. it can run hundreds of validators as shown by some Rocket Pool community members like Marceau that we talked about earlier. He's running 175 mm-hmm. mini pools on a on an ARM system that costs less than five four hundred $400 to build, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. However, you know, there might be a whole generation of people who are still waiting for them to be able to run their node on their phone and like clients will let you do that in the future, uh, which is absolutely tremendous. Um, I think that the great thing to understand about this is these are all protocol updates that are happening, happening simultaneously. It's not like, you know, we'll do A, then we'll do B, then we'll do C. However, we're doing A, B, C all at the same time. It's just different teams are working on them. Different groups are working on them. And I think that like, like you were saying earlier about like, um, during the previous bear market, you know, there was software updates, uh, sorry, pr- apps coming out constantly, it's kind of drip feeding you and giving you that. Now we've got protocol updates happening in the same way that are keeping mm-hmm. people really excited and p- keeping people like really passionate. So, you know, we had the merge and then now we've got withdrawals coming up and then we've got um, 40, uh, 4844 coming up. And after that, we'll have the next thing. And there's always some really great thing to look forward to and um, mm-hmm. that we can clearly see that will improve ethereum in all these amazing ways right so that's really great um and i love seeing that you mentioned the scourge as well and that's one of been that's like these maxis that we've talked about earlier like that's kind of been their focal point recently right like ethereum censoring ethereum's like um government control it's been captured by regulation mm-hmm. um and of course we all know that that's part of my language bullshit right um mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's miss missing miss information misinterpretation of the facts um can you talk to me a little bit about your ideas about what you're seeing in relation to like OFAC sanctions and MEV boost and the issues slash controversies that come up around that yeah so I I think a lot of people probably don't understand where the censorship is coming from or how it's actually kind of uh designed on Ethereum or or is kind of working on Ethereum right now I think I've, I've been saying for a while that the validators don't want to censor or aren't censoring, I guess, uh, because they want to censor. What they're doing is they're basically outsourcing their block production to MEV boost relays. And some of those relays are censoring, right? So when people, and, and the reason why they do that is purely economic incentives. It's got nothing to do with them wanting to actually censor. But the reason why the relays may be censoring is because their lawyers have told them, hey, you need to censor these transactions, or sorry, these um these things that were sanctioned by OFAC. And that's why that is happening. But in terms of the validators actually using the relayers, it's pretty much, I would say for 99.9% of validators, it is all about the economic incentive. It's all about the profit motive. 
So when you start thinking about it like that, you can start designing around it, right? And that's what we're seeing being done where things like uh, more relays coming online, being, you know, non-censoring and saying, hey, we can just, we can be just as profitable as the censoring ones. You know, you can use us. And we've seen, you know, blocks throughout max profit relay, getting a lot of market share and taking market share away from Flashbots, which is a censoring one and blocks throughout max profit is non-censoring. And then we've seen things like Flashbots come up with the min bid thing where you, you take a small cut on the profit that you you can kind of get, but then you aren't censoring uh, things that are a kind of a lower transaction fees, right? So you aren't you aren't using sorry you aren't using the relay for the low uh, kind of MEV profits. You're just block building on your own. So there are various different things that are that are happening to tackle this issue. But I, I really try to hit home for people that it is an economic incentive issue and an MEV issue first. It is not an issue of people wanting to censor because if the, the relays didn't exist, you wouldn't have all these validators coming together as one monolithic block builder in order to, to censor. They wouldn't do that. And we would probably see you know close to 0% censorship on the network. So that's, that's the way I try to frame it. And when you frame it like that, you can start working on solutions for that rather than solutions for censorship because censorship isn't the, the, the main issue. The main issue is MEV and the economic incentives behind that which lead to the censorship rather than the censorship being the thing that leads to to something else right so that, that's the way i think about it anyway i think for me personally i can only talk about myself and like maybe other people mm -hmm. in the rocket pool community is um i i use mev boost on my rocket pool node because i have to right so mm -hmm. the way that rocket pool uh, nodes are set up is um you share your rewards with the reth holders and mm -hmm. if you did local block, block production, there's ways of stealing MEV that could come in. Um, that would, you know, technically be going half of that would be owed to the uh, RETH holders, but you could skim it off the top. So we, as a protocol, don't allow like solo block building to take place. But mm -hmm. there's, I think, seven or eight now relays that are integrated into the smart node stack, full range of. Um, censorship, non-censorship, slash um, MEV uh, extraction, sandwich attacks, all that kind of stuff. You know, whatever flavor of MEV that you're comfortable with, you can choose that. However, you have to choose one. Like you can't, yep. you have to have one. Now for someone like me, and there's a fair few of us, I turned on all the relays on my node, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I have Flashbots on, I have Bloxroute on, I have um, Eden, I think, is that integrated or not yet? I'm not sure. There are a few of them. I think there's five or six of them that are currently available and I have them all turned on on my node. Now, does that mean I'm censoring? I don't think so, right? Like whatever uh, whatever produces the best block, you know, my node will accept that. And like whoever bids the highest price will, will get the block. Since the merge has happened, I think I've had maybe 10 or no, seven or eight proposals and four of mm -hmm. them have gone through flashbots and the others have gone through blocks route the issue that i'm trying to bring up here is i don't think it's as clear as saying um that flashbots is censoring and uh, blocks route is not and that one is bad and one is good i mm -hmm. think there's a lot mm -hmm. more nuance in this discussion we've all looked at like the mev um charts you know on the mev watch website where you can kind of see like it's peaked at like 80-90% and now it's kind of like trending mm -hmm. downwards and that's really great to see but I think that's too simplistic a view as well and I think we as a community need to do a better job of highlighting some of the nuance here and some of like the finer details so there's this uh, one of the rocket scientists so rocket scientist is a 
um, a community member who provides like goes above and beyond in the rocket pool community and you know they get like this community designation of rocket scientists so one of them is called Waldorf and Waldorf's like shared a lot of information about MEV boost and MEV extraction and how it impacts the rocket pool protocol and he has this really interesting idea about our, us reframing our understanding of censoring blocks on Ethereum and he thinks it should be um posited in the way of like how long did it take a censoring block sorry a block with a censored transaction uh, to get through and get onto the onto the actual canonical chain so um he has this idea that like you know if 50% of relays are blocking you then it might take um two blocks to get through or maybe three kind of at most whereas if 99% are blocking you then it might take you 5 minutes or 10 minutes to get through and i think that is a much better understanding of like you know if you we don't even have to use the term censorship then anymore right like it's like it can be any block so like how long did it take your block to get included onto the chain was it 12 seconds or six seconds i guess on average uh, like if you paid the right amount of fee or was it 12 seconds and i think that oh sorry 24 seconds or more i think that reframing might be a really healthy way or really like clear way of showing that this really isn't that big a deal of where we are right now and it's only going to get better as well. So even the worst case situation that we have right now with like, you know, Flashbots doing 99% of um, block building, even that you can get your block confirmed more quickly than you can get a Bitcoin block confirmed. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that, yeah, yeah. that that's a really like a, a interesting uh, position, like a way of thinking that he's kind of like shown the community and like people are kind of sharing that in other places now. Um, and of course, you know, with um, um, sensitive resistance lists that are coming in and proposal building separation that's going to be baked into the actual like core Ethereum protocol. I think all of these things that we're going to get in the next, within the next year or two years at most, these are ways of showing that it might not be as big a deal. I think in a way, um, it's kind of like the staking, um, staking um, market share about how you know mm -hmm. we're saying in a way that you know it might not be that big a deal and like there's ways that we're fixing it whereas it seems so big right now to certain people myself included <laughs> but maybe the, <laughs> maybe the maybe the um censorship stuff looking at it is the same way as that you know it might seem like a big deal but it might not actually be that big a deal so mm -hmm. um, yeah you, i mean i i definitely agree that, like yeah, I mean, I would say I definitely agree with all of that. Um, and and obviously the the nuance here of um the censorship is is vast, right? But the the problem with with nuance, is, I mean, with anything, is that people like the sound bites, right? They like the very distilled information, and thinking about the nuance and reasoning about it takes a lot more effort than just listening to a sound bite or looking at a at a chart. That's why I think that while everything that you've said is correct and I agree with it and I think it's not as big as a deal as people make it out to be. I mean, I've been saying this myself for a long time. Mm -hmm. I think that translating that to people is very, very difficult because it is stuff that you really only know about if you're in the weeds of things. It's not like we can go to a mainstream publication and say, look at this chart. Now, this is the reason why this chart is actually not accurate because mm -hmm. you would lose people trying to explain that. Not to say that we shouldn't do it and we shouldn't yeah. do people who, who are willing to listen, but it's, it's about finding a scalable way to explain that to people, I think. And I think that the framing of how many blocks into your transaction gets included is one of those scalable ways of doing that. And it resonates with a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but even that requires some nuance behind it as well. We but I think graphs. that... I, 
Yeah, exactly. We need more pretty graphs. We need more pretty yeah. charts that people can kind of reference and things exactly. like that. So that's what we need to scale things. As an educator, I, I'm acutely aware of, of that because I know that on the refuel, I go into the weeds of things and I talk about things, but um, my reach on the refuel is, is is rather small compared to my reach publicly on Twitter. And that's simply because on Twitter, I don't really do much nuance on there. I kind of do it down to bite size. And then I give nuance on my tweets on, on the refuel for people who care about that. So I try to do like a hybrid approach there, yeah. but there is danger, dangers in, in over, oversimplifying things and making them out to be and, and spreading them maybe the potentially wrong information by simplifying it too much. But at the end of the day, you have to strike a balance between simplifying something and providing nuance to it as well so that you can reach the maximum number of people with what you're trying to explain yeah okay i think we've covered a lot of really great things in this chat today anthony i'm really happy that we took the time to talk about all of this stuff is there anything that you want to add any points that you want to clarify that we brought up during the conversation um or anything that you feel like we didn't give enough attention to I think we covered a lot, right? We covered a lot of ground here. We talked about a lot of diverse topics, which uh, which are always always fun to talk about, and especially with someone that is as tuned to the community as uh, as you are. I mean, I feel like we're on the same wavelength, which is which is always uh, which is always fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just reiterate what I was saying, I guess earlier, uh, where I said stick around. You know, in the bear market, don't don't exit the ecosystem. The maximum amount of opportunities are available to you in the bear market to get involved. Uh, you know, maybe you want to get a job in crypto, or maybe you want to get involved in one of the communities more deeply. Deeply, or maybe you just want to invest in things and, and potentially have a, a better risk reward than you would in a, in a bull market. Uh, but either way, I, I always suggest people just stick around. If you're enjoying yourself, if you're having fun, there's no reason to, to leave. Stick around because we're not going to be in like the depths of a brutal bear market forever. Like it may seem like we are, but there is always light at the end of that tunnel. And especially in Ethereum, there's always something interesting to pay attention to. So I don't see any reason to, to leave just because the prices are, are you know are down from what they were. <laughs> yeah, of course. And of course, in the rocket pool community we love our pops so you've got to stay for pops you know like you got yep, <laughs> you got to yep, collect definitely. all of them so <laughs> yeah exactly is that you'll miss the pops if you don't stick around exactly. that's for sure <laughs> exactly i want to uh, share a really interesting um, conversation that i had i want to share it with you that i had a couple of days ago yesterday when I, I met a friend for lunch and it was the first time that i told this friend that i he's a bit he's a bit older than than we are but he's like in his early 70s and um it's the first time I told him that I have a YouTube channel and like that I talk about cryptocurrency. And um, he was like, who, who told you to do this? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I just did it myself. And like people started watching and he's like, but why? <laughs> like he just <laughs> and this idea of like not needing someone's permission, you know, to do this. And yeah, I feel like yeah. that you, you probably had moments like resonating like that for you where people just didn't understand that you can just get up and, start working doing your work and that's something mm -hmm. that i've been trying to promote on rocket fuel as well is um i do a thing every tuesdays where i ask people like what work did you do in the last week in the community and i feel like you know people like you and others um in this space you know we uh, are kind of spearheads right now of encouraging that and maybe mm -hmm. that's something that we should all do more of is to get people not just to hang around but maybe give back an hour or something or some amount of time every week so I think that's something that I'm trying to push and hopefully we can all make it grow together in this time where um, the gains in the future will be maximally returned, right? Like the work that we put in now is will really be like amplified massively in the coming months and years. So there's there's yeah, a lot definitely. to do. There's a lot, there's enough yeah. for everyone to do, definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Yep, yep. Yeah. So are you coming to ETH Denver? Yes, I am. I will what? be in ETH Denver. I've got my flights and accommodation all booked, so I'm locked in. <laughs> Wonderful. I got I got my stuff booked yesterday as well, so maybe I'll bump into you out there. I'll, I'm will i going to be at the Rocky Pool booth, so maybe you can come find me, find us all there. So. Oh, definitely um, will. Definitely. I wanted to say, uh, Anthony, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk and um i know that i will be watching the daily Gwe every day like i like i always do and uh, others who are listening to this will will doing the same thing so thank you for everything that you do and welcome to our community as an odao member i know you've been around for a while but we're really excited to have you here and we really hope that others can be inspired by like the generosity that you're showing um with like donation donating your um your income and also just being like a a good steward of of the order so thank you so much for that yeah yeah thank you for having me thanks for the kind words and i'm looking forward to seeing you in the uh, rocker pool discord absolutely see you there anthony